0: Well, we are starting a new study this morning in the Gospel of John. It's been a long time since I've said something other than Revelation, and uh, thankful to God to be doing so this morning. Starting a study in the Gospel of John and a Christmas series from the first 18 verses. And I'm doing so because verse 14 in John chapter 1 is the essence of Christmas. The Word became flesh. Four words, the essence of Christmas. And so if you haven't already, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll see what God has for us. And if you need a copy of God's word, just get the attention of one of the ushers. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I memorized this passage as a kid, but honestly, I never imagined how much is here. Or how deep the truths that beg to be explained. Just beg to be unleashed and uncaged so that they can seep deep within our hearts and our minds. I'm not even sure that four weeks will do it justice. I I don't just say that tongue-in-cheek. I say that honestly and I'm I'm not alone in that. John Piper tells the story of a class on the book of John. John Piper is a, a former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, author and scholar he tells the story of a class that he took on John at one point in 1974 i think it was part of his doctorate and but the days in the days leading up to the class the professor suddenly died which in this day and age would probably make most college students very happy and not them in the university kind of in a scramble, didn't know exactly what to do, and so they got on the phone and and thought, man, let's just shoot for the stars, and so they called up one of the preeminent New Testament scholars of the day, Oscar Coleman, and said, Dr. Coleman, will you come with all of your background and on spur of the moment, come and teach the book of John to these doctoral students, and Dr. Coleman graciously said yes, And Piper says that when he got there, he spent the first 13 weeks of the course, 13 of the 18, on verses 1 to 14, chapter 1. 13 weeks, two hours a class, on 14 verses. That's how rich this passage is. It's how wide and how deep the river of God it is to our hearts and souls. A prologue An introduction here in these 18 verses, catch this, that stands as one of the most condensed and significant passages about Jesus in all the Bible. That's not hyperbole. That's not exaggeration. These 18 verses, and I trust that you'll agree with me by the time we're done in a few weeks, these these verses stand as one of the most condensed and significant passages about our Lord Jesus Christ in all the Bible. And so I want to get right at it. Instead of giving you all of the background as I normally do when we start a a book, a new book of the Bible, I want to get started with the text. I want to get started with the meat, just like John does. We'll pick up all that other stuff, I assure you, along the way. I won't leave it out, but I want to get to the text. So you follow along with me, will you? John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I've titled this message after a book that Josh McDowell wrote in 1977. More than a carpenter. I imagine that many of you are familiar with it. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to read it and get familiar with it. It's just a short little book, published way back, printed. I think there's over 10 million copies that have been printed in dozens and dozens of languages around the world. And it's an apologetic about Jesus. An argument for why Jesus is indeed Lord of all. He lays out in that book, Josh McDowell does, that Jesus is either Lord or liar or lunatic. He's he's one of the three based on what we know about him in the scriptures. And because the last two don't make any sense, the liar and the lunatic, indeed he must be Lord. It's an apologetic. But that's not why I chose this title. This isn't an apologetic sermon per se. Certainly, as John writes it here in these first 18 verses, it's meant to oppose and refute some of the garbage that was out there in his day and some of it that's out there in our day, for sure, for sure. But I chose it because just the very statement, more than a carpenter, is a massive understatement. A massive understatement. A stark contrast to what John lays out here. It couldn't be any more stark. It's a a night and day comparison to the full truth about Jesus. More than a carpenter, he's God. More than a carpenter, Jesus is life and, and light and creator. And the list goes on. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And so let's start at the very beginning with the beginning. I kind of feel a song coming on. Let's start at the very beginning. Verse 1, In the beginning was the word. Full stop. Full stop. In the beginning was the word. The word, the word, capitalized. Do you see it? Capitalized here because it represents both a person and a concept, a formal concept at that, AKA logos. In the beginning was the logos, John says. That's the Greek word, the original language that John was writing in in the first century. And it's the first thing that you need to know, the first thing that you must not miss in this prologue. The word for word is logos. Logos. Or logos, or logos, or logos, or whatever makes you feel the smartest. All right? However you want to pronounce it. L-O-G-O-S. And it's quite common in the New Testament. Did you know that? Used 330 times. This word. Used 330 times in the New Testament. The vast majority with a small L to simply mean spoken message. That's, that's the vast majority of them. That's what it means. Like in the other Gospels where the preaching of Jesus is said to be the logos of God, or the spoken message of God. But here, it's used in a formal sense. Capital L. Because in the Greco-Roman culture of John's day, it was a first century philosophical principle thought to be pre-existent and explain the universe. In John's day, in the, the milieu of the Greco-Roman world, as he wrote most likely from the city of Ephesus, the Logos was considered to be this philosophical principle that was preexistent to anything in all of creation, preexisted it, and explains all of creation. That's the Logos, as the people in that time knew it. A formal concept by the deep thinkers at that time to explain all that we see and all that we feel. All that there is. Sometimes they thought of it and referred to it as a life force. Hello. Sometimes they thought of it as an ordering principle. A, a, you know, a, a principle that actually brought the order to the universe. And a, a principle that explains it in an orderly way. Sometimes they thought of it that way. Sometimes they thought it was just this nebulous notion that makes, made sense of things. They couldn't put their finger on it, but they knew that it must exist because, well, this exists. The universe with all of its order and beauty and its design and splendor there, there had to be a principle, they said. There had to be an intangible, impersonal concept outside of it all that explains it all. Now, if your head's swimming about now, maybe this will help or maybe this will make it a lot worse. It would be like the search for a unified theory of everything in our day, in science. Have you ever heard of, heard of that? The unified theory of everything? It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing that the mucky mucks in, in the science world are, are searching for as much as they can possibly search. It, it would, it's an explanation that they, they feel must exist In order to explain the largest forces of the universe, like in the galaxies and the stars and so on, explained right now by the general theory of relativity that Einstein rolled out, and explain what goes on in the smallest forces of the universe at the subatomic level and the quarks, the quantum theory of the universe, as well as the Newtonian theory of everything in between, classical physics. And there's this massive search for a unified theory of everything that brings it all together and explains it. That was the logos in the first century. At least at the philosophical level. It was this all-encompassing, all-unifying explanation for everything in the universe. Something that made sense of everything that we see and feel and touch and taste and experience and think. And John picks up on it to basically say, Let me tell you about the real Logos. Let me give you the real meaning. Starting with the pre existent eternal aspect. In the beginning, he says, was the word, meaning the beginning of time, echoing the very first words of the Bible, the very first words of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God, implying that the Logos existed before anything was created, just like God existed before anything was created. He's riffing off of that very phrase in Genesis, in the beginning. Then, even more strange, he says, still in verse 1, the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, the Logos, was with God. God. It existed at the beginning of time just like God, he says, and it was with God, different from one another, but similar and together, together. And then he makes our head really hurt by saying the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, the Logos, was God. God. What? Like how can a philosophical principle be God? That had to be in the mind of every believer as they heard this read in their church after John had written it and it was distributed. They had to be wondering that. We have to wonder it as we read it for the very first time. How can a philosophical principle be God? Or to reverse it, how can God be a mere philosophy? It sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? Heretical. Don't go there. Until you get to the next sentence, when he changes everything. Sounds heretical until you get to verse 2, when he changes the entire meaning with one word. He. He Verse 2, referring to the logos, the word, was in the beginning with God. In one sentence with one word, John changes the entire narrative, the entire meaning. The ancients may have thought logos was a principle, but it's actually a person. That's what he's getting at with the word he. They thought it was a principle, but it's actually a person. And it's a preexistent person at that. A person, as he says in verse 2, reiterating, a person in the beginning with God. With God. A person in the beginning with God as God. Present with God and God himself. He, in verse 2, means the real logos is a person. I'll never forget when one of our daughters read this for the very first time. I don't remember her exact age. She was in grade school at some point there, and she used to read her Bible at night, and it just happened to be my turn to tuck her in on this particular occasion. But when I went upstairs to do so and, you know, opened the door, and she was sitting there propped up on her bed and had a pillow on her lap and her Bible on top of the Pillow, when I walked in, she said, Dad, I just started John 1, and I don't understand it. Like, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then it says, he was in the beginning with God. Dad, who's the Word? Who's he? Now, our daughters knew that When I tucked them in, they could stretch out bedtime as long as they wanted if they asked dad a question about the Bible. (laughs) And they did, all the time. And I knew exactly what they were doing, and I couldn't have cared in the least. Like, if they wanted to talk about the Bible, they could stay up till midnight as far as I was concerned. I never said that to them. They didn't know that. But that was the truth. Let's go. But on this, this occasion, I knew it was different. I knew her question was real. I, I could sense it in the tone of voice. It was, it was a genuine question because she was bothered. She was bothered by it and she wanted to know. She wanted to understand. And just so I said, sweetheart, that's a great question. Let me do something here. Let me put my hand over the bottom of your Bible here, the bottom of the text. And I want you to read verses 1 and 2 again. And then I'm going to lift my hand and I want you to read verse 14. And so I wanted her to have that aha moment. And so she began, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh, she read, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. She paused for a second, and then she looked up and she said, Jesus? The word is Jesus? Yep. The Logos is Jesus. Oh, I didn't say that to or I didn't want to muddy the water like I did with you with the unified theory of everything or anything like that. But yes, that's exactly what John is saying. The, the Logos, the word, is Jesus. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, the only Son from the Father, Jesus Christ himself, which John goes on to further prove in the second part of the chapter, naming him by name. You see, more than a carpenter, way more than a carpenter, Jesus is the Logos the he of verse 2 and the word of verse 1. Not just a unifying principle, not just a nebulous notion in the universe, but the unifying person in the universe. Person. God's revelation, when you get right down to it, God's revelation of himself to create, sustain, and explain the universe. That's what you get when you put all of this together the concept of first century principle of Logos and, and Jesus being the Logos and becoming flesh and all of the rest that we find here and what we're going to find in the next couple of verses. That's the real Logos. That's the, the biblical Logos. It's God's revelation of himself. It's God's word spoken in the flesh Physically. It's God's self-expression to reveal himself, the, the same as himself and different, the same and different, eternally preexistent as he is and yet separate from him, in the beginning and together. More than a carpenter, Jesus is God's revelation to not just explain the universe, not just explain the yearnings of your heart, not just explain the thoughts of your mind, good, bad, and ugly, and everything else, but he's God's revelation to create and sustain the universe in the first place. But before we get to that, we must not miss the most important point of verses one and two, that Jesus is God. Way more than a carpenter, Jesus is the Logos, and Jesus is God. God. Combined with verse 2, verse 1 is one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible to that end. Maybe you've heard people say along the way, or maybe you've run into it in writing, oh, the Bible doesn't say that you know, Jesus is God, and Jesus never claimed that he was God. Uh, wrong, wrong, and Wrong. They actually just show their ignorance or their lack of studying the Bible or their willful rejection of the Bible because it's all over the Bible from the titles that are used of Jesus, which are the same titles of God, to explicit references like this by his apostles who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus along life's way. Way more than a carpenter, he's God. And this is one of those clear statements to that end. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. If the Word is Jesus, as we just saw, then Jesus is God. God at creation and God now. Always has been and always will be. He's God. He's God. Those of us who've been in church world for so long, we sing about it, we talk about it. It's just a a presumed sort of thing. We've lost the, the awe and the amazing nature of it and the mystery of it. Oh, that God would remind us even now in this moment of his deity, his godness, the fact that he is God. Not just a representation of God, but God in the flesh. The word was made flesh. That's the most important point here. And John reiterates it in verses 14 and 18 as well. We'll see it in a few weeks. More than a carpenter, Jesus is God. But don't lose sight of the fact that he's also with God. Jesus is God and he's with God, indicating that he's separate and distinct from God the Father. While sharing the same essence with the Father, the same nature. Jesus is God and he's with God, the same and separate, the same and separate, which gives us two of the three persons of the Trinity. If I can make your head hurt a little bit more, it gives us two of the three persons of the Trinity, two of the three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who John will describe a little later in chapter 1. All three, three distinct persons in one God. And there's not some like magical statement that we can just sum that all up in one sentence and and relieve all of the tension in our heart and soul about that and and clear away any, any question about it. There's just not anything like that. The closest I think that we can get to it is to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and God is one. Four statements to describe what the Bible describes as the Trinity, but never names. Our God is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the glory and mystery of the Trinity. Each person fully God in and of themselves, but sharing the same essence, the same Godness, co equal in glory and divinity and power, but different and distinct in their being and role. That's been the Orthodox teaching of Scripture and the church for almost 2,000 years now. God is a Trinity. But it wasn't always embraced. Just like it's not now. Especially the deity of Jesus wasn't always embraced, wasn't always believed. In fact, there were times in church history when it was actively opposed. In fact, overwhelmingly opposed. The overwhelming majority of those in church world, once upon a time, Rejected the fact that Jesus is God. And this passage, right here in John 1, that you're looking at and that we're talking about, was the tip of the spear that men like Irenaeus and Athanasius used to defend it. Used to defend the deity of God. The godness of God. This passage... Irenaeus in the 2nd century and Athanasius in the 4th century. In fact, it was in the 4th century that all of this came to a head at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. You might think of it as the modern-day O.K. Corral, the showdown at the O.K. Corral, or is that like too far in the past of a Western that nobody knows? That was was this. That was the O.K. Corral in their day, the Council of Nicaea. All of Christendom, and I mean all of Christendom, any mucky muck that was a mucky muck, was gathered at that time, catch this, to confirm the teaching of a guy named Arius who outright denied the eternal nature of the Son. You say, well, how in the world could somebody deny the eternal nature of the Son when it's so clear here in John chapter 1? Because he ignored it, just like people do in our day. Because he thought that his logic was a better way of thinking than God's way. And so Arius said that because Jesus was born, there must have been a time when he didn't exist. I mean, before you and I were born, we didn't exist. And so if Jesus being fully man, as the Bible teaches, if he was born, that must mean that there was a time when he didn't exist. And if he didn't exist, then he couldn't be God, because God, by definition, exists eternally, past, present, and future. Kind of sounds good, doesn't it? Kind of seemed to work. Oh, may- maybe Jesus isn't God. And person after person, church after church, got on board with it. Until they convened this council to seal the deal, and a guy named Athanasius stood up. The whole world bought into the logic, except for Athanasius. That's why the phrase Athanasius Contramundum in Latin became a saying. Athanasius against the world. Back in that day, when somebody was up against all kinds of opposition all around them, they used to say, man, you're just like Athanasius Contramundum. The whole world is against you. It was that well known. And it was that real. Athanasius stood up and he turned right here to this very passage in John chapter 1 to refute the heresy that Jesus wasn't God. He turned to John chapter 1 to defend the deity of Christ and did so with the word. The word. The logos in the flesh. We stand on some big shoulders and thank God for it. And it's a lesson that even our best logic can be wrong. Oh, even our best. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. If you believe in a Jesus in any other way, shape, or form than how the Bible describes him, you're not saved. You believe in an idol. You believe in an idol. It's a lesson that even our best logic can be wrong and that the word must always take precedent. More than a carpenter, Jesus is God the second person of the Trinity. Third, Jesus was the agent of creation. The agent of creation. That's the third characteristic we find here. Look at verse 3. All things, John continues, all things were made through him, the word, who we know is Jesus. All things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus, God the Son, is the one who made all things, brought all things into existence on behalf of God the Father. We don't normally think of it that way. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. True, true. And the one who spoke them into existence, the Second person of the Trinity was Jesus, we find out here from John chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus was the agent of creation on behalf of the Father, God the Father. That's the implication here, and that's the reason that I use the word agent because it says that all things were made through Him. You see it? Through Him. Implying that He wasn't the impetus. For creation. It wasn't his original thought. But rather he was the instrument of creation. He was the means of creation. The goal between. Between God the Father and creation. Carrying out. The will of the Father. By speaking things into existence. On his behalf. Jesus. Was the agent of creation. The same Jesus who saved your soul and makes you whole. Spoke all that we see and know and hear and feel and experience into existence. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8:6. If you're thinking I'm stretching it or something, Paul says there, for, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's kind of like the the Trinitarian nature of God. the, The best we can do is just make these statements and let the tension be the tension and let the mystery of God be the mystery of God. All things are from God the Father created through Jesus Christ. All things. Don't miss it. All things including heavenly things and invisible things, Colossians chapter 1. Jesus made everything. Jesus made everything. And notice, John states it both positively and negatively in verse 3. States it twice, I think, to drive home the fact that Jesus is preeminent and preexistent. Look at it there again. All things were made through him, positive, And without him, the negative way, without him was not anything made that was made. It's like he's trying to tell us something. It's kind of like when you tell your kids to to come straight home from school, and then you say, and don't dilly-dally along the way in two different ways, positively and negatively. So you're like, yep, yep, tried that, didn't help. In two different ways, positively and negatively, you're conveying the same thing. Same. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. Notice that, anything made that was made. If he made everything in all of the universe, that means he's preeminent over everything in all the universe and preceded everything in all the universe. Is that intuitive? If he made everything in all the universe, that means he existed before everything. Otherwise, he couldn't have made what existed before him. Okay? If he he made everything, he existed before everything. And if he made everything, he's over everything. Confirming that in the beginning in verse 1 is meant to convey his pre-existence. That Jesus existed before creation. Otherwise, he couldn't have made it. Now... At this point, you might be thinking, why does this matter? Why does that even matter? Why did John write that? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire him to write this? Like, why is this important? Two reasons. First, it affirms the lordship of Jesus. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of all. That's the preeminent part. As the agent of creation, he's the Lord of creation. Just like a puppet maker is Lord of his puppets. We get that. Just like a a model maker is Lord of his model. Just like a, a programmer is Lord of his program. Jesus is Lord of all, including you and me. We too are created. He's Lord of all. Second, it's important because it shows that he's not an angel. The fact that Jesus was the agent of creation pre-existing all of it, shows that he's not an angel, which was a false belief and false teaching in John's day, just like it is in ours, just like it is in ours. The fact that Jesus was the agent of creation, the one who brought all things into existence, means he's not an angel because angels are created as well. They're not eternal. If they were eternal, they would be God. They were created by God, angels. And so if Jesus created everything, including all the angels, that means he can't be an angel himself. Unfortunately, not only in John's day, there are people in our day, like Jehovah's Witnesses, who strenuously advocate otherwise. Maybe you've run into them, they've run into you, Maybe they are some of your family members or your co-workers or or friends. To preserve their belief in Jehovah only as God, that's the the entire thrust of what they say and believe, that that it's only the Father only who is God. To preserve that, they say that Jesus is an angel created by God. You want to talk about blasphemy and heresy? They say that he's an angel created by God. And they often turn to John chapter 1 verse 1 in their version of the Bible, the New World Translation, to support it, which says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, small g, an angel, they say. I've had conversations with them at my doorstep on this, only once, they haven't come back. The problem is that translation is a perversion of the original Greek. It doesn't say a God, and it doesn't mean a God. Plus, plus, it's refuted by verse 3. You don't have to know a lick of Greek. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You just have to read verse 3. All things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. I I turned the Bible around and I said, wait a second, wait a second, let's forget for a second about the argument about Greek and everything. You're not an expert, I'm not an expert. Just read verse three for me. Without him was not anything made that was made. Does that not include angels? It does. It does which means he can't be one. He can't be something created because he created everything. Two reasons that this point is vital. More than a carpenter, Jesus was the agent of creation, the one who created it all, the one who continues to sustain it all, and the one who explains it all, the real Logos. And last, Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is God. Jesus was the agent of creation, and Jesus is the source of life. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Jesus was life. John says, the source of our physical life, spiritual life, and light of life. The source of our physical life because he created us. Hello? He's the source of our life because he made us. He formed us. He gave us breath. He gave us consciousness. He he gave us vitality or any other way, any other word that you might use to describe life. He is the source of it, having created all things and created us. In the womb. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no heartbeat. He's the source. What's more, He's the source of our spiritual life. Our spiritual life, as in the animation of our soul. The life of our soul. That's the primary meaning here. The primary meaning is not that he's the source of our bios, that he's the source of our physical life, though that's implied, I think. The primary meaning here is that he's the source of our spiritual life. He's the source of our spirit, giving us our spirit in the first place and awakening our spirit in the second place. He's the source of our spiritual awakening, our resurrection, if you will, to eternal life, Ephesians chapter 1. No Jesus, no spiritual life. No Jesus, no eternal life. No Jesus, no life, capital L. Because third, he's the light of life. He's the source of our physical life, our spiritual life, and the light of of life In him, verse 4 says, was life, and the life was the light of men. In other words, his life is the source of our light. And if that doesn't do anything for you, join the club. I've wrestled with this for weeks upon weeks, as, as late as this morning at 8.35 in my office. Like, what does it mean that Jesus is, that, that he is the... His life is the source of our light. I think it's this, best I can do. And John comes back to this over and over and over and over again in the book of John. And so by the time we're done, I trust that I can get it. And I hope that you can get it too. It it means something like Jesus is the brightness of our soul. Jesus is the gleam in our eye. Jesus is the radiance of our heart. Jesus is the hope of our existence. And, and not just all of that internally, but he's also the means of exposing our sin and helping us kill it. He's the, the, the means as the light of life. He's the means by which we know what's right and avoid what's wrong. So he, he, not, only, he not only shines in our soul to bring us to life, He not only shines through us to give off light, but he shines before us to guide the way through life. If you've ever wondered why people in our world don't seem to get the most fundamental truths of life, right and wrong, good and bad, helpful and harmful, if you've ever wondered like I do, and I have to remind this Remind myself of this all the time. All the time. It's because they're walking in darkness. They're walking in darkness. And they have no idea they are. They don't have Jesus. That's why they don't seem to get some of the events of the world and reactions to the events and the news headlines and the happenings and all of it. That's why they don't seem to get the most fundamental truths of life. They don't have Jesus who is the light of life. But those who do, those who do, praise God, not only see but walk with confidence in life because the light of life can't be overcome. The light shines in the darkness. Verse 5. Do you see it? The light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the sinfulness. The light shines in the evil. The light shines in the wickedness. And the evil and the wickedness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the source of life and light that can't be overcome. Can't be overcome. Can't. Can't. Can't and won't. Won't because it can't. Can't be prevented from shining. The light of Christ cannot be prevented from shining. Cannot be snuffed out. Cannot be dimmed. Cannot be diminished. He's God. He's God. His LED lamp never goes out. Light of the world and light of our souls. He has not, is not, and will not ever, ever, ever be overcome. If that doesn't give you assurance of your soul and heart, if that doesn't make you feel like you are on solid ground, I don't know what will. And that's the very light that shines within those who believe. Those who believe in Him as the Logos. He'll never be overcome by the darkness of your sin, Praise God. He'll never be overcome by the evil of Satan and his minions. He'll never be overcome by the hatred of this world. He'll never be overcome by anything. More than a carpenter, in him is life. And that life is our glorious, glorious, ever-shining light for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel at your word. Man, I marvel at your word, God. We marvel at how much is there in so few words. And so, oh God, will you impress them on our heart? Lord, we confess that sometimes we have difficulty understanding these things, but. Will you still impress them on our heart so that we know them and we treasure them and we apply them in the moments of life? God, would you impress in our heart the words that you are the word? God in the flesh who made us and leads us. The source of life who awakens and shields us. Convince us to the extent that we need convincing, Lord, Remind us to the extent we need reminding and refresh our hearts and souls. And above all, God, awaken us even more. Will you do it? Will you awaken us even more to believe even more? We pray.